0: I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Um, Gina and I, too, would like to thank everyone for your uh, being on the call today as well. I want to welcome you to the call today. Today's topic is diverse populations participating in decisions about your care with your healthcare team, and this is part two of how healthcare disparities may influence your cancer treatment and care. Today's program is supported by Bristol Myers Squibb, GlaxoSmithKline, and a grant from Genentech. I really want to thank them for their support of today's program. And we have many participants on the call today. We have over 200 participants on the call today. You come from all of the United States, mostly from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have international participants from Canada and the United Kingdom, so it is also a bit of a global call as well. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Wong. Dr. Wong is Professor of Medical Oncology, Melanoma and Cutaneous Malignancies, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Wong will be addressing what to consider when selecting a cancer care team and treatment facility, languages spoken, and diversity of the healthcare team, how to self-advocate with the healthcare team, languages spoken, disability services, and other barriers to health equity. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong.
2: Thank you, Dr. Misner. <clears throat> it's indeed a pleasure and a privilege to uh, spend time with you today. And I'm part of a, a very august group of great speakers. And so I think uh, the audience is in for a, a really great teleconference. Um, uh, I think to start at the beginning, uh, when someone has a diagnosis of cancer, I have cancer, what do we do next? How do we get treatment? That's a very important point. It, it, it happens almost simultaneously with the shock of the diagnosis. And um, and so it's a very important decision that you have to make and with a lot of pressure, both time and, uh, and, and sort of the anxiety of the diagnosis. So how do you start? Where does this start? I think you, you have to uh, really lean on people who know the environment best. So if you have a primary care physician, uh, a PCP, or a family doctor, that's a good place to start because they're in the community. Uh, unfortunately, you're, you're likely not their only patient who has a cancer diagnosis, and they've had a chance to refer patients in, so they know the community best. Um, uh, as well, uh, you may, when you're looking at these decisions, look at what your needs are. And I think people who um, uh, have other comorbidities, other issue, medical issues ongoing, um, Or uh, may need a center, may need a a larger medical center because there's a lot more services wrapped together. In fact, uh, there is a list of NCI, National Cancer Institute, designated cancer centers, which are found in major cities across the nation. And uh, as one of the criteria to be named uh, an NCI designated center, you must have comprehensive services. And this is a uh, these. Um, uh, centers are uh, favored if you have uh, uh, many other needs, uh, comorbidities. Uh, examples being cardiac issues, respiratory issues, or complicated uh, surgical issues. Uh, uh, we have focused expertise in these centers. I'm not saying this is for everyone. Again, seek guidance, but uh, from your own sort of healthcare team. But that's an example where you might need a higher end care. That this may also be true, you have a rare diagnosis. Uh, uh, The common cancers are common, and almost any center can can handle it. And in fact, in this country, uh, the statistics show that 75% of cancer care is rendered outside major academic centers. Uh, But where you might need a major academic center are rare diagnoses uh, of uh, unusual cancers, or those in which you need high-end medical care. For example, if um, uh, uh, you know if there's any hint that you may need uh, uh, these very elaborate things like transplants and things like that, again, seek help at the beginning to help plan this out. And uh, uh, the good thing is that even if you end up in a uh, uh, outside of a major medical center, if you do need these uh, high-end care, oftentimes these will be referred in by other oncologists. For example, my own personal practice, in which you do uh, um, a plethora of these high-end care uh, maneuvers, uh, I would say 75% of my practice is referred to me from other oncologists. So, um, yeah, so there's no m- sort of mistake in making it. That's not the point point is uh, to get started in your treatment, and we can escalate or deescalate as needed. I remind everyone that the that the important person in this is you uh, and you are the boss of your care so uh, and so you must advocate for the things that you believe you need uh, and those include uh, uh, things that are not visible to everyone so if you have spiritual language needs you, uh, if you have uh, disabilities that, are, that require specialized care, these are things you must bring up. Um, uh, these are not always uh, things that we can, can spot. Uh, for example, we I have a number of patients who are hard of hearing and they still make fun of me because the first time I came in the room, I didn't know and I was talking to their quote-unquote bad ear and so I had to repeat the uh, the interview uh, on the other side. And this is not something I knew. And and so uh Uh, we make it a point to really reach out to patients and ask them if there are any special needs that we should know about. As for language, which is very important, uh, uh, all centers, the comprehensive care centers, are required to have translation services. And one of the things that can happen from that is that you have to, however, declare that you need so. We do not, in this day and age, we don't need on-site live people to help us with translation. More so, we have electronic means that can help us. So to review, uh, you know, these are things you have to advocate for yourself. Um, I, I want to end by saying that um, uh, uh, the important things are to also point out things you need help with. And in fact, the words, I need help with, or I'm going to have trouble with, are very important because it, it sort of uh, sets the stage for where uh, your healthcare team can help you. Uh, especially now that we talk about telemedicine, video visits, and so on and so forth, I'm well aware that not all of us are fluent with smartphones. Not all of us have smartphones, and then you need to have a high-speed connection, so on and so forth. Sometimes, uh, for some of my patients, it's a good old telephone that we use just to handle appointments. So something you must advocate for. So as I end, I want to point out, number one, you are the boss of your uh, relationship with your physician. However, there are people that can help you starting with your PCP, your primary care physician, and even the oncologist that's looking after you now uh, if you need high-end services that are only available in set academic centers. Uh, uh, please advocate for yourself. And and not everyone's disabilities are visible, and so you must let people know. There's absolutely no trouble with that, and uh, and and so uh, with all this, uh, our hope is that you have the, the best relationship you can with your healthcare team and uh, set yourself on the road to the best cancer care possible for you. I'll end there and pass the baton to my fellow colleagues. Thank you for your attention.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Wong. That was a superb presentation. You really set the stage for today's program, so thank you so much. Thank you so much very much. And our next speaker is Dr. Guadalupe Palos. Dr. Guadalupe Palos is um, her own health care team. She's a doctor of public health, she's an oncology social worker, and she's a nurse. And um, Dr. Palos will be addressing what is cultural humility and how your care team practices cultural humility, what to expect from your relationship with your health care team, is your health care team providing you with equitable, excellent care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Paulos.
3: Thank you, Dr. Messner. It's an honor to join our esteemed panel of experts on a topic that often is overlooked in the cancer world, and that's diversity's influence on patients' decisions about the healthcare. You know, over 20 years ago, the Institute of Medicine released a landmark report that was titled Unequal Treatment Confronting Racial and Ethnic Disparities in Healthcare. The report concluded, and I'm going to quote, bias, stereotyping, prejudice, and clinical uncertainty on the part of healthcare providers may contribute to racial and ethnic disparities in healthcare. Since that time, there's good news. And what we have seen now is an emphasis on the need for healthcare providers and, symptoms to, and systems to be aware of, of a patient's cultural perspectives and their backgrounds. And most importantly, to respect patient and family preferences, their values, cultural traditions, or even taboos, language, and socioeconomic status. This understanding or concept is referred to as cultural humility. And for today's discussion, I'd like to expand the definition of cultural diversity to include the geographic location of a patient's neighborhood, the age of the patient, or their sexual orientation. These characteristics significantly impact the patient's decisions about their treatment, their symptom management, and overall cancer care. Sadly though, since the release of this report, patients of diverse backgrounds continue to experience lower quality healthcare and often report unmet needs in seeking cancer care. There's a large body of research that documents the following from patients, following reports. Patients believe they would have received better care if they were of a different race or ethnicity. They believe they were treated disrespectfully during a healthcare visit. For example, they were spoken to rudely, ignored, or talked down to. Patients felt that providers often did not understand the background, and if they tried to explain it, they felt that the providers looked down on them. So over the years, the success of achieving this cultural humility in health has varied. Today, some, our healthcare delivery system still seems to be a one-size-fits-all approach. And yet, it is well-recognized that patient-centered, individualized care will depend on a person's worldview, that is, their values, beliefs, and behaviors regarding health, illness, and wellness. There's a growing commitment among healthcare professionals to practice cultural humility by being nonjudgmental and respectful of others' unique diversity to deliver cancer care. In the last few moments, I'll share a few tips to help you determine if your care team practices cultural humility to provide equitable care. One of the first signs to watch for is whether you or a family member were asked if an interpreter was needed, and if so, in in what language. And that can come with the first call that they make to set up the appointment. Second, did each provider who interacted with you take the time to introduce themselves and their team members. And along with that, was the healthcare team concept, their roles and their goals, and explained it in a way you could easily understand? And did you receive information on whom to contact for further questions? Were you asked if you understood the process or needed clarification of information? And was any material provided to you in your preferred language? It also helps to ask yourself, did someone on the team ask about your background? your background, your cultural background, the practices you have, your religion, or anything else that would affect your treatment decisions or choices? Were you asked about any cultural practices or herbal remedies you may have already tried? And if so, what was the result? Did someone on the team ask about your preference about involving your family in your care and what information to communicate with your family? And along with that, were you able to point out who the decision who your spokesperson would be during your visits if that uh, is applicable, and were you able to give your input or preferences about your symptoms or treatment side effects? Were you asked to give your views about your goals, your outcomes, and decisions regarding your care? Did you feel that your provider listened to you in a non-judgmental manner when asked about your needs or preferences? and most important, Did you think you were treated respectfully and as an equal partner in your care? To summarize, diversity among our patients and healthcare providers will continue to grow, and that means there's going to be an increase in language, literacy, and communication barriers. Patients can achieve greater patient satisfaction with their cancer care when providers show empathy, respect, and humility during clinical interactions. Remember, stronger and more trusting clinical relationships will result when providers deliver care within the context of a patient's individual beliefs and preferences. I'll happily answer questions and encourage our callers to share examples of your care team providing equitable care to you or your loved ones. Dr. Messner, um, this concludes my remarks, and I'll return the program back to you. Thank you.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Palos. That was a superb presentation. And just... Really, a lot of things for people to be to to think about in terms of what their care team, what their care team needs to do, and that's really so important. So thank you so much. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A. And our next speaker is, is Ms. Lisa Petgrave Nelson. She's an oncology social worker with Catholic Health Cancer Institute at St. Francis Hospital. And um, Ms. Petgrave Nelson will be addressing how race may impact your access to oncology care, cancer treatment, management of treatment side effects, and pain management, and strategies to overcome these barriers. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Petgrave Nelson.
4: Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you to Cancer Care and my colleagues for this this opportunity to present on this important topic. The following story is a brief story that, I, um, that can be triggering for some, but uh, it was directly from a patient, and I'd like to share it nonetheless. I recall working at a large transplant center in the southeast where I assisted patients of color with overcoming barriers to renal transplant. It was there where I met a black man in his 60s, a farmer who had one arm. The farmer told his story of living in the deep south in a rural area of Alabama, where he was shot in his right arm by another 15-year-old. Due to the segregated town in which he lived, his mother and father saw help to save his 15-year-old life and to hopefully preserve his shattered arm. The adult man sitting across from me described how he ran to his home as he bled profusely while escaping his attacker. The segregated town in which he lived had no doctors, but there was a white doctor in another town who saw black patients in the back of his office. The farmer told told me his right arm had been amputated without anesthesia by this white doctor. The last words he heard uttered before he passed out from the shock and trauma was cut that nigger's arm off. The man with tears in his eyes looked me in my eyes, a young black woman in the predominantly white institution, and posed the following question. Miss Nelson, he asked, will these white doctors do right by me? Unbeknownst to many of us, our patients are presenting to our clinics for cancer treatment after suffering from trauma, similar to what I mentioned a few seconds ago. Research suggests that cancer disparities are driven by a combination of inequities within and beyond the health system that are rooted in racism and discrimination. People of color are more likely than their white counterparts to be uninsured. They often face other barriers to accessing healthcare that may limit access to cancer screening care, treatment, and management of pain side effects. I was recently in New Orleans for a social work conference and was re-educated on the ugly legacy of slavery, systemic, and institutional racism, biases, and redlining within the state. These inequities had led to the 85-mile stretch of land along the Mississippi River between Baton Rouge and New Orleans, being referred to as Cancer Alley. This area contains over 200 petrochemical plants and refineries which has resulted in dozens of cancer cases each year. Circumstances like this have led to exposure to environmental health risk factors due largely to underlying social and economic inequalities, which also drive cancer disparities. Underrepresentation or no representation in our cancer centers leads to distrust of the healthcare system, consistently reinforcing exclusion which leads to underrepresentation in in areas of cancer treatment, including in clinical trials. Beyond healthcare coverage and access to care, discrimination and bias within the healthcare system also plays a tremendous role in disparities in palliative care and pain management. Many of our patients of color are often faced with the challenge of lower health educational levels, decreased awareness of their patients' rights, lack of confidence in their self-advocacy, white coat syndrome, language barriers, and financial implications of missing work. Research also shows that financial barriers and lack of health insurance prevent adequate care and management that are associated with lower screening, delays in diagnosis, decreased receipt of cancer therapies, and low treatment adherence. How do we expect our patients to adhere to cancer treatment when they're faced with transportation barriers, food deserts, losing their home, or fear of losing their jobs. Patients of color with a cancer diagnosis are encouraged to learn about your diagnosis. Choose your doctor carefully. Sadly, people, are people often spend more time researching the ratings of a restaurant where they should go out to dinner compared to choosing a physician. We have to build rapport and trust, and so our patients are encouraged to do so, and it does take time. You're a part of the care team. So communicate with us. We're here to help and we are there to work for you. Clarify what you need. Ask questions and share your feelings. Ask for help from your loved ones. Do you need help from your mom, your big mama, your auntie, your titty? Ask for help from them. Tell your doctor everything, no matter how small you think it may be. Ask to speak to a social worker. That's the first step to getting more familiar with your team, and knowing exactly who, or who your team is. You can also join a support or advocacy group, and you can also hear about that from your social worker. And sadly, sometimes you have to switch doctors if necessary. As providers, it's important for us to become familiar with not only our own biases, but how these biases affect and influence our ability to provide care, subsequently causing more harm to our patients. It's important, as providers, to establish trust and build rapport, identify and negotiate goals, respect and prioritize patient needs, practice, as my colleague said, with empathy and cultural humility, partnering with our patients and our caregivers. Respect our patients' needs and priorities as long as they are reasonable, and sometimes it takes a little bit of maneuvering, even if they're unreasonable. What are we feeling as clinicians when we start to judge and look down at our patients? Do we think that our black and brown patients are lying, more about, lying about their pain? Do we find our patients disruptive or rude if they ask questions? In closing, I would like to say that a cancer diagnosis is one of the worst news a person can hear. It's traumatic and daunting for not only the patients, but also the clinicians who are often overwhelmed and, often, and overworked. There are many factors within the healthcare system that will take us a lifetime to rectify. But our efforts through our interactions should be collaborating with all our patients, especially those of color, those who are often underserved and marginalized. This is one of the small steps that we can take to ensure that all people benefit from continued advancement in cancer treatment across the continuum. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Petrae uh, Nelson. That was a wonderful, amazing presentation, Very, um, and I have to say, very um, compelling for all of us listening to your presentation. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well, so thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is, such a, is, is Mr. Blas Bush. And uh, Mr. Bush is Executive Director, LGBTQ plus health program, Stanford Medicine, Center for Academic Medicine. And Mr. Bush will be addressing challenges um, the LGBTQI community experience, experiences when accessing oncology care, suggested strategies to deal with these challenges, and when to seek a second opinion or finding the best care. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Mr. Bush.
5: Hi, everyone, and it is an honor to be a part of this uh, conversation today, and thank you so much for all of the speakers who went before me. Um, One note, uh, my name is spelled very much like Blaz, but it's actually pronounced Blaze, and Blaze Bush is is fine. I also use my pronouns Blaze or he, and that's one of the ways that I would recommend to folks uh, to get comfortable introducing yourself with your pronouns asking for people's pronouns Um, and as i talk about some of the strategies that uh, create more affirming spaces for lgbtq individuals uh, this is one of the best recommendations i can make Um, but just to give you a little bit more information about the lgbtq community when accessing oncology care so there's a large number of known disparities for the lgbtq community Um, which is a large community. So when I talk about LGBTQ community, I'm saying lesbian, gay, bisexual, Um, this may include asexual, aromantic individuals, pansexual individuals as well, Um, as well as transgender and non-binary individuals. And so there's differences in sexual orientation there and gender identity. And all of these have different impacts when accessing um, oncology care. And there's a large amount of disparities across the board. Uh, for each of these populations. Now, it's important to note that these are not biological increases to risk. There's nothing inherent about an LGBTQ individual. So a lot of these come from societal oppression and mistreatment, especially when they're attempting to access oncology care. Um, These disparities also increase, and I think uh, previous speakers have done a wonderful job of of highlighting how um, when you have LGBTQ and you layer on race, ethnicity, ability, language, Um, These disparities then increase, and then they increase again when you add in gender identities such as transgender and non-binary. So, for example, trans women of color have some of the highest disparities in cancer care outcomes. This is often due to avoidance of accessing care, uh, both on the screening or even after screening and diagnosis. And this is often due to negative experiences that occur within the healthcare spaces. Our healthcare spaces tend to be very gendered, um, very set up around heterosexual cisgender individuals. So cisgender uh, being people who identify within the gender that they were assigned at birth. Um, And so there's a lot of times where people make assumptions, right? So for example, I once went to the doctor with my partner and uh, while I was there, they said, oh, it's so nice that your brother has joined you for this visit. <laughs> um, and then we had to, to explain, while already feeling like maybe it wasn't the most safe space, that he was actually my partner and he was there in support of my partner. And you saw then um, the person, the provider who was providing care for us, um, become a little bit more guarded and removed for the rest of the visit. And that's what many people experience when they access care. So what happens is we tend to avoid care, and so it becomes very late whenever we actually get treatment uh, and find inclusive and affirming spaces. At the same time, many of our services are not designed specifically with LGBTQ individuals in mind. So while we might have support groups, we might have places for people together, um, they're not always inclusive of LGBTQ identity. So there may be um, you know, a marriage, husband, and wife support group for, for people battling cancer. Well, already we're saying husband and wife so we're not inclusive of partners. Um, and so I may think, well, is that really a space for me? And if I'm getting cancer treatment, it may be hard to find my LGBTQ community. Uh, a lot of LGBTQ spaces are late night venues. Um, and so if I'm you know, struggling for survival and taking care of myself, it may be really hard to access these spaces. And because of discrimination, I might not have a family. Um, from birth to rely on. And so many LGBTQ people use what they call their chosen family, uh, uh, people that they've gathered in their community who are willing to be there for them. But of course, surviving cancer needs a lot of support, and it can be very difficult when your whole community is battling similar oppressions to really be there in uh, and, and such a, uh, a high-demand way to take care of somebody. Lastly, of course, there's also a lack of LGBTQ health training for oncologists, so we don't know a lot of information. Um, We don't necessarily have um, research to show how gender-affirming hormone therapy increases or decreases uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh, We don't get taught how uh, screening guidelines may be specific for LGBTQ individuals. So doing more of this research and providing more education for our healthcare communities, both who are currently in school and are already in the professional workplace is really vital to increasing better care outcomes for these individuals. Um, so those screening guidelines, I wanna say again, and then also, um, you know, there's, there's very specific needs. For example, if a transgender individual has had gender-affirming surgery, um, knowing then maybe for, uh, let's say, a trans woman, that she may still have a prostate and that that prostate may be in a different place. And so an oncologist specialist may need to work with a surgeon to fully understand the anatomy uh, and provide inclusive and affirming care. So just to wrap up, I know that I'm coming up on time. There's so much more to talk about. Um, but I wanna say, you know, first of all, recognize assumptions in your language, look for the gender. Look for ways to move to gender-inclusive language, like partner, or instead of saying pregnant woman, say a person who can be pregnant, Um, a person who has a prostate, or a person um, who maybe still has breast or chest tissue, even if they've had a mastectomy. And lastly, I wanna say that um, on the idea of when to seek a second opinion, um, I have my own personal story that, um, you know, there's not enough screening guidelines specific to LGBTQ individuals. So while I complained about a series of symptoms that I had had for many years, um, people continued to tell me, well, we don't need to screen for cancer yet, the screening guidelines aren't until 40 for your age group. It wasn't until I went to a specialist and said, you know, I've been asking about this for years, I'm really concerned about this, that they said, well, because you're having symptoms, we could disregard that screening guideline. We should go ahead and assess you. And that's when they discovered that I had precancerous cells. So I would say, in finding that second opinion, if you're having symptoms, if you're having ongoing discomfort, continue to have those conversations with people because the screening guidelines just aren't there yet for the LGBTQ community. OK, thank you so much for my time.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Um... Ms. Bush of Oz, um, it was a wonderful, wonderful presentation. And uh, lots of questions, I'm sure, will be for you during the Q&A. Um, uh, and I think you really um, did a wonderful job in highlighting some really key issues um, that confront the LGBTQI community. So thank you so much. And our next uh, speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. And Dr. Fleischman is former founding director Cancer support services, Continuum Cancer Centers of New York, now part of the Mount Sinai Health System. An author and researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman will be addressing tips to communicate with your healthcare team, determine if they are the best team for you, and guidelines to prepare for telehealth telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, and discussion of open notes. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman.
6: Thank you, Dr. Mester, and thank you for everybody. Who's taken the time to tune in for this um, teleconference? Uh, it is, uh, I think, quite helpful information to those of us in working in cancer, and certainly patients and families alike. Uh, Dr. Messner asked me to speak about some of the new innovations in the way care is delivered, um, especially during the recent COVID-19 pandemic. We most of us suddenly switched to doing a lot more on, tel- on the telephone or online than we ever had in the past. However, the need to communicate with your healthcare team is there no matter how you do it. So please uh, think about the kinds of questions you need answered either by the oncologist, the oncology nurse, the oncology social worker, the geneticist, the Pharmacist, a the physical therapist, a the nutritionist, and I, I really hate to leave everybody out, but in good comprehensive cancer care, there are a, a lot of um, people who know how cancer affects uh, their, their, the, the things that happen within their discipline, and they can be very helpful to you. And if you're being treated for cancer in a place where uh, those folks aren't readily available, uh, ask your team to refer you to someone in the community or a close by city whom they trust. And uh, with the uh, familiarity and the increased use of the telephone or even an audio video device like a tablet or a computer or a smartphone, we can now get uh, consultations from people that are not necessarily geographically right in our neighborhood, but could be cross town. Uh, in another part of the state, in another state, or across the country. So um, please make sure that this is um, something you ask about if the services that you need aren't available close by. Uh, Those of us who suddenly switched to telehealth all struggled with it, uh, patients, families, and providers alike. It was a very difficult transition, but I think we've uh, learned how to use it to our advantage over the last few years. So when a, when you're presented with a telehealth visit, um, the doc, the provider's office will in advance uh, set up the time, make sure that you are available on that time, and will explain how to connect. Sometimes they will connect with you, and sometimes you need to connect through the device to them. And they should be sending you information, or something that's called a link, which is a Um, an Internet uh, address that will help get you to the system or the platform that the provider's office uses. Uh, If the call, whether the call is on the phone or um, you can actually see the provider and the provider can see you, the process is um, alike. need to be in a quiet place. Your device needs to be plugged in or charged. Really important because you don't want to run out of uh, battery power during an important visit. The, uh, you need to have a either good phone line or good um, phone connection if it's a cell phone or a good internet connection, especially if it's a video call, because that uses a lot of a lot of, um, a lot of uh, the, uh, the electronic signal uh, that uh, transmits our audio and video calls. Write down your questions beforehand. This can be very, very helpful. Um, if it's a, a an initial visit, which would be followed by a, um, uh, in, in general, be followed by an in-person visit. So a physical exam could be completed if that's important for the service that you're using. Um, speak with uh, either a um, Uh, a relative or friend or someone in your sphere who can help not only formulate the questions, but join the call at your request and be online to take notes and to make sure that you've asked all the questions that you have. The uh, unintended good consequence from all this is that person no longer needs to be in your home or in your city, but can be anywhere in the world with a good internet connection. And it can be very, very helpful to involve uh, trusted family and friends, especially those who are knowledgeable about cancer and cancer treatment, either because of their training or their own experience. Uh, the uh, obviously a lot, a number of physical exam uh, elements cannot be done over the phone or over a, a computer or a tablet, but a lot can be. Um, and it's important to be, for all of us to be able to maximize as much of that as possible when a physical, um, when, when a, an in-person visit isn't possible. One of the other things that's happened with this electronic revolution is that many of our larger uh, hospitals and practices and, and most cancer centers now are using an electronic database, an electronic chart or medical record. And that provides you with a certain entree that you didn't have when we were on paper. Uh, If you needed the results of the test, you would have to get it from the office, uh, your provider's office and often sign releases. Um, now that's all available to you if you have a computer connection to the electronic health record or electronic medical record that your provider's office uses. Just be really careful with this because at times you will see the results before your provider. That can lead to a lot of misunderstanding, uh, especially during ca- cancer treatment and some t- most of the time afterwards for a certain period of time, some of the abnormal Uh, results are expected. So it's important to understand the context. It's important to understand if something is one or two units outside of the normal range that is generally quoted on these reports, that that may be okay, perfectly okay. If you're looking at pathology reports or radiology imaging reports of a CAT scan or an MRI or a PET CAT, these are incredibly incredibly complex at times and be sure not to jump to the wrong conclusions be sure to make a telephone or in-person appointment with someone at your provider's office who can go over them with you and explain the meaning to you and what this means about how um, about your cancer diagnosis how it is or is not responding to treatment, and what are the next steps. It is just really easy to be able to jump to a bad conclusion, an erroneous conclusion based upon reading these reports. And you may have access to them before your provider's office even looks at it. So please, it's a great thing, but please be cautious about interpreting them. Um, At this point, I'll turn the call back to Dr. Messner. Oh,
1: thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. Wonderful presentation, as always, and I know there'll be questions to you during the Q&A, so thank you so much. And our next speaker is Sarah Grisblas germelo and she is an Insight Program Coordinator at Cancer Care. She's an oncology social worker as well, and she'll be presenting health literacy, how to become more knowledgeable about your care and your important role in shared decision making about your care and your healthcare team when to seek a second opinion. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Gerona.
0: Thank you for the introduction. Today, I will be addressing health literacy, challenges, and how to become more informed about your care. Understanding your health and having knowledge about your diagnoses, prognosis, treatments and side effects, it's an essential component for when it comes to making decisions about your care. There are many factors that may impact how you receive information about your care, whether there are cultural differences and barriers, language barriers, limited understanding of medical terms that your oncologist uses, limited access to resources or access to technology, or even feeling discomfort or mistrust with your medical team. It is important for you to know that you can be involved in the decision-making process about your care. A good starting point is to get yourself informed with the specifics. Sometimes oncologists may use medical terms that may be unfamiliar to you. So if you don't understand, it is okay to ask for clarification or further explanation. You can also request for information in plain language. This can include pamphlets, videos, photos, or diagrams. Everyone has a different style on how they receive information, so make sure you can identify which works best for you. If English is not your primary language, make sure that you can request an oncologist that speaks your language, as there are many institutions that provide oncologists with several languages. If this is not available at the institution you are in, you may request for translating services as well as information about diagnoses, treatments, and side effects in your native language. Bringing a loved one to your appointments can also help with making the most out of your visits and the information you receive, as they can help with offering emotional support if you're feeling anxious or nervous. It can also help with asking questions you need answers to or even advocating for you and with you. Connecting with other healthcare professionals like hospital social workers, patient navigators, or case managers can help with gathering information about your care if this isn't available at the center or hospital in which you receive care in. They can also help with connecting you with reputable cancer-related organizations like Cancer Care and other organizations that offer supportive services. Connecting with supportive services like support groups, individual counseling, resource navigation, and workshops can help facilitate the process of becoming more informed of what your journey with cancer may look like. When you are initially diagnosed, there may be a plethora of emotions that you experience, maybe anxiety, sadness, anger, fear, confusion, as well as maybe feeling the need to get into treatment as soon as possible. Usually, with a new diagnosis, there's a period of time before treatment begins, depending on the type of cancer and stage you have. During this time, getting a second opinion is considered routine, essential, and a necessary component of your healthcare plan. It is important to know that even if you aren't newly diagnosed, you're still entitled to receiving a second opinion if you experience the following. If you have a rare, unusual, or advanced stage cancer, if you do not feel comfortable with your doctor, the diagnosis, or if you need further confirmation, If the oncologist you have does not speak your native language. If your healthcare insurance requires it. If you want the medical opinion of a specialist for the type of cancer you have. If the treatment offered has side effects or risks that you may find unacceptable. Or if the treatment options will result in unacceptable or unreasonable demands on your life and your family. It may be possible that your doctor's treatment goals are different from your own. If this is the case, you may also seek a second opinion. If you're interested in clinical trials or alternative therapies, a second opinion may also be a best route. Or if the cancer you're diagnosed with is not responding to the current treatment. The first step to getting a second opinion is to talk to the doctor who initially diagnosed you. Here are some phrases that you can utilize when asking for a second opinion. You can say something like, I respect your opinion, but I would like to speak with another expert before starting the recommended treatment. How can I proceed? You can also say, I need the reassurance of a second opinion, and I'd like to talk to another doctor to be sure. What is the next step? Or you can say, This is all new to me and I feel that a second opinion can help me get the clarity I need. Can you help me with the next step?" If your current oncologist is not able to provide referrals for a second opinion, you can also call your insurance company and ask if they can provide you with institutions or specialists that are covered by your insurance. You may also contact a medical society associated with the cancer you have or a medical academic institution. Seeking a second opinion can be uncomfortable, but reminding yourself that second opinions are routine, normal, and recommended can help with easing feelings of discomfort. Your opinions and how you feel about your care are very crucial when navigating a cancer diagnosis and deciding what type of treatment is best for you.
1: I will now be turning to Dr. Nessner. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Ms. Jaramillo, um outstanding presentation, really. Um, just wonderful information for everybody. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is uh, Samantha Fortune. And Ms. Fortune is an oncology social worker. She's our Women's Cancer Program Coordinator at Cancer Care, and she's going to be discussing Cancer Care's free programs and services and really how to access um, cancer care services by phone or by our website. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Fortune.
7: Thank you, Dr. Messner. As Dr. Messner mentioned, my name is Sam Fortune, and I'm the Women's Cancer Program Coordinator as well as an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization providing free professional supportive services and information to help people manage the emotional, practical, and financial challenges of cancer. Our comprehensive services include resource navigation, counseling, support groups, educational workshops, publications, and limited financial assistance. In my role at Cancer Care, I provide supportive services to individuals and families impacted by cancer diagnosis, as well as develop programs and initiatives for our women's cancer department. Individuals diagnosed with a cancer diagnosis may choose to supplement existing social networks by either joining a support group or engaging in counseling services. Many hospitals, treatment centers, and nonprofit organizations offer supportive services as well. Being a member in a support group can offer the opportunity to speak with others who are going through similar experiences as you are, obtain information, and provide support. Currently, Cancer Care offers specific cancer support groups online, including our Women of Color support group, which I'm currently running. Our other online support groups aim to reduce feelings of loneliness, anxiety, explore new ways of coping, increase feelings of empowerment, provide practical information about treatments, and resources, and also address ways to communicate with one's medical teams and loved ones. Our online support groups take place using a password-protected message board format and are led by professional oncology social workers who offer support and guidance. Groups are held for 15 weeks at a time, and group members must register to join. You can register for our online support group through cancercare.org by selecting our services and support groups. After completing the registration process on our website, members can participate by posting in our group 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Individuals who may experience practical and financial concerns through their treatment um, and that can also impact like how they cope overall with their cancer diagnosis. But please note that if you are encountering such financial hardships, there are organizations that may be able to help you. Cancer Care's resource navigation services offer a short-term, strength-based approach to patients and caregivers affected by cancer nationally. A toad specialist will work with the client in connecting them to resources, referrals, and financial assistance. If you're interested in learning more about the supportive services we offer, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hope Line at 800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. At Cancer Care, our oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual as well as their loved ones. We are here to offer you support throughout this experience and look forward to hearing from you. It has been such a pleasure to be part of this program today. Thank you for your attention, and I'll now turn the program back to Dr. Messer.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Ms. Fortune. Wonderful presentation and wonderful um, access that everyone will have to resources. So during the program today, people, our speakers may have mentioned there um, is resources for you, and um, we will be getting a survey monkey evaluation from us probably um, early next week. And in that evaluation will be all the resources we mentioned so that um, you'll have them at your fingertips as well. So it's not just an evaluation, it's also just a way of our giving you also some extra resources to have. So now it is now my pleasure to move on to the QA section of this program and i'm going to ask regina to bring all of our speakers on board and we're going to try to get as many questions as possible regina
0: thank you ladies and gentlemen at this time we will take questions from the web only you may submit questions by clicking ask a question
1: we have a question for um for Mr. Bush, I'm an openly gay woman with ovarian cancer, and I feel like my wife and I experience microaggressions when I'm in the hospital receiving treatment. How can I address this without being braces?
5: That's a great question, and I hate to hear that you're facing uh, microaggressions when you're accessing care. Um, you know, you have a right in any healthcare care space, um, you know, Really, almost every um, professional organization in the country recommends you know sexual orientation, gender identity collection um, to create more inclusive and affirming care. Do so you have your right to correct people and to ask to be treated in ways that are affirming to you? Um, you know of course, depending on what state you live in right now, um, there are different policies, but many states do have protections around um, uh, these microaggressions that you're bringing up, um, and a dedication to provide sensitive and affirming care. So, you know, I would I would say at first, and I'm sure that you're already doing this, but um, but you know, speaking up, asking to be able to share this information, asking for this to be documented in your chart, if you're comfortable with that. Um, even if a electronic health record hasn't activated their sexual orientation, gender identity fields, they have other places like their notes, um, alerts in the chart where they can be alerted to use affirming language with you, recognize your relationship, um, approach you with less microaggressions. You know, I mean, even working in an LGBTQ health center previously, um, we made mistakes with patients, right? And it, it was only through when we got feedback, um, whether it was to a supervisor or through the formal complaint system, that we could really follow up and address those. So while that takes, extra stress on you and you shouldn't be experiencing this when you're accessing your own care you know making files and and reporting this um, is really important and um, it does make a difference to try to assess and and deal with this and change the culture and the environment the last thing i'd say is there are directories so there's the national uh, lgbtq cancer network Um, this is the directory and information that provides inclusive and affirming Uh, LGBTQ cancer resources they also have educational resources so um, another thing you may be able to do is offer that as a resource to the health center that you're at to say you know this is training that I think you and your uh, your team really need to learn so I really hope it gets better for you and your your wife
1: thank you so much especially we will include the resource that you've provided for our participants as well Mr. the monkey thank you so much Um, This is a question um, for um, for Dr. Palos. I recently read that 1.5 million Americans were dropped from Medicaid, which is so disheartening. Do you
3: know of specific efforts being done to combat this? Oh, that's an excellent question, and I invite my... uh fellow uh, panel members to jump in on this one. Uh, all I know is that there are efforts to address uh, the disparities through Medicaid. Um, realistically, though, we, we know is Medicaid and Medicare are programs like that are tied to politics. So a lot of those opportunities for changes or for you know better distribution of resources or tied to policymakers. so one of the things that can be done is every person on this call can make an effort to contact their representative Uh, if you're a member of ARP contact ARP and support them make your voice known that this type of disparities are affecting your life as well as your family member's life. Um, And again, I encourage my uh, fellow uh, panel members to add to that information.
1: Thank you so much, Dr.
6: Palos. Does anyone
1: else like to add anything to
6: that? Dr. Fleischman, I'll jump in. Um, Medicaid, or in California known as Medi-Cal, is a a program to provide health insurance that is partly funded by the federal government and partly by each state. So each state really has a large say in the uh, types of benefits that are available, be they for acute care, for office care, for uh, long-term care. So um, knowing what's available in your state is important because you could live right across the border from another state where the benefits may be entirely different.
1: Excellent. Thank you. Anyone else want to add? These are excellent suggestions and um, we'll come up with some more things to um, add to monkey as well. Um, and this question is for uh, Ms. Uh, Petgrave-Nelson. I'm a single mom diagnosed with stage 3B lung, non-small cell lung cancer. I can't just quit work because my kids five and seven will suffer. What are my options?
4: Yes, um, I think the one option is to speak to the social worker within your um, organization. I understand that you're unable to quit work. Um, You can also, in addition to speaking to the social worker, you can probably call up social security disability, speak with your employer to see if you are eligible for uh, for disability, if um, the social worker can find programs um, that will be able to give you some grants or, um, or work, reach out to local organizations. So I would suggest starting with a social worker within your healthcare uh, center first. And there are various, um, there are various um, support for children now. There's Bright Spot Network, there's, um, there's also Pickles Group. So also wanting to make sure that your children are, based on their age, that they're being appropriately um, supported um, and, and and if you need to speak with them, again, these are also organizations that can help with having that conversation and sending resources to you. But I would start first with the social worker within your organization.
1: Oh, Thank you so much, um, um, Ms. Patrick Nelson. And another question for Ms. Um, Fortune. How would I get a second opinion if I'm so limited on where I can get, go because of the insurance but want to find the best oncologist for my father? It seems like they refer to the doctors from small offices they know here in the same area. I'm sorry, Carolyn.
7: You got cut off. What was the um question? Sorry. I'm sorry about so that. So I'll repeat it
1: again. Sorry about that. Um, how would I get a second opinion if I'm so limited on where I can go because of the insurance but want to find the best oncologist for my father. It seems like they refer to the doctors from small offices they know here in the same area.
7: Gotcha. Um, So there's a couple ways you can explore getting a second opinion. Um, The first resource I always direct patients to would be um, their insurance and seeing who their insurance is in network with. Um, they Also, I think it's on cancer, um, cancer.gov, they also have a list of providers and sometimes it's just calling providers that are um, maybe a little further from your area and seeing if they take your insurance because sometimes they may take your insurance but it's not listed and then also to checking your insurance for out-of-network um, benefits as well because sometimes to um even if they're not under the insurance if you have um out-of-network benefits that can also help with that as well
1: excellent thank you and i'm just going to ask our speakers to provide uh, takeaways um from today's call um and um So I'm going to ask the following speakers to just give takeaways. Um, I'm going to start with Dr. Wong, Dr. Palos, Mr. Um, Bush, Dr. Fleischman, and uh, Ms. Fortune. Do
2: you want me to start, uh, Dr. Messner? Yes, please. Mm Sure. So uh, remember, you are the boss of uh, this relationship. Find someone you can work with, be proactive, uh, not all disabilities or needs are visible. So, uh, so help your uh, your your team out. Uh, be proactive. Let them know what you need. Thank you and and good luck.
1: Thank you. And Dr. Palos.
3: Hi, um, I'd like to remind our listeners that every patient-provider clinical en- encounter is an opportunity to learn from each other. Remember, your provider is an expert in cancer or healthcare, and you are the expert about your cultural or religious practices or your worldviews. Share that expertise with your healthcare team, um, and I believe that will help uh, make a difference in um, your satisfaction and eventually your outcomes. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. And uh, Ms. Bush.
5: Thank you so much for this opportunity, and thank you for the wonderful questions. Um, for those patients on the line, I would say, um, you know, you have a right to be treated in the way that feels best to you. Um, it's not about the golden rule, uh, treat others how um, you would want to be treated. It's about that platinum rule, uh, treat others how they want to be treated. And so speaking up, asking for this, um, making it clear your identities sexual orientation, gender identity, your pronouns, the name that you use, the language you use for your partners, or even your body parts are respected. And giving that feedback is going to help change the systems. Um, Or finding places that offer these inclusive and affirming services, Um, they are out there and they're growing. To all of the folks who work in um, provider spaces, um, you know, this... Community is facing a a large-scale backlash in the country right now. There's a a lack of research, and there's a lack of spaces that are LGBTQ affirming. So if you could just do one thing, uh, whether that's implementing sexual orientation, gender identity questions, using patients' pronouns and the name that they use, creating a a specific LGBTQ support group, or, or having a specific research initiative to grow the research and find better guidelines, we really desperately need all of this. It is a matter of life and death. So, so thank you so much to all of you who are a part of, of changing our environment and creating more inclusive and affirming spaces.
1: Thank you so much, and this Fortune. I'm just going
7: to echo off of what everyone has like kind of spelt out. Um, I stress the importance of advocacy for yourself and you are your own person um, that can expre- express your needs the best. And I know sometimes it can be like very intimidating or scary, but the thing is too, the more you speak up, the more you're going to find the answers to what you need. So don't be afraid to Speak up, and also note that there's always supportive services for you. Um, it may be in your cancer center, it may be out of your cancer center, but wherever it is, it's there for you. So don't be afraid to reach out for those as well.
1: And Dr. Fleischman,
6: sure. Uh, we spoke a lot about the uh, electronic access to care and the importance to ask good questions and prepare them in advance. Um, if by chance that you do not have access to a proper device or even a proper um, internet access, please ask at the center where you're being treated, ask the uh, oncology social worker or the nurse navigator or in a smaller practice, ask the office manager to see if they can help you. There are resources in the community, um, sometimes even at local libraries where you can have access to the internet and that will help you communicate with your team.
1: Excellent. Well, I just want to thank all of our speakers. You've been amazing. Amazing group of speakers. So many of you. And we had um, so many speakers today. We actually had eight speakers. Well, seven speakers today. It's amazing. I also, want to thank, <laughs> I also want to thank our participants who asked such really great questions. And of course we could have gone on much longer, but of course um, we do want to be thoughtful about the time and for everybody's time. so in wrapping this up, I do want to acknowledge that although we did not have a chance to take everyone's question, we took some of the questions and for those of you who have a question yet to ask or when queue to ask a question or asked a question, please go back to treating Healthcare team with your questions and also with the resources that you were provided, take your questions to them as well, and we'll be sending you those resources in that survey monkey evaluation as well. Most importantly, we do not want anyone to leave this call through you're alone. We want you to know that you're now part of the community of support and we are here to help you. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all.
7: Ladies
0: and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.